Welcome everybody, this is Ali DePew and Kathleen Dent from Inspired Classroom and Mentoric Software. We are building a community of mentors and elevating the practice of mentorship. This is a show about defining, refining, and discovering how mentorship can revolutionize learning. Today we have a super special guest, Bud Lavery, with us today. Bud, welcome! Hi, well, thank you for inviting me. Oh, I'm so glad that you're here. So, um, Bud is a recent move to Montana, and you have moved to Montana after a long stint in the South, if I'm if I'm correct. Correct. North That's Carolina wonderful. in particular, yes. North Carolina. I love it. So, tell us a little bit about what, who is Bud, what were you doing in North Carolina, what brought you to Montana? Mm. So, um, as you can tell by my accent, I am not a native North Carolinian. Actually, I went down there for college, loved the town that we were in, Durham, um, in part because it was kind of a gritty kind of real town. There wasn't a lot of facade. Um, you know, if I ran into the chair of the school board, she knew me by name and would ask me about how my kids were doing. It was very different than, you know, I spent a few years in the D.C. area where, you were never going to get in front of any of the political decision makers, let alone them asking like, oh, how, how are Katie and Teresa? Like, <laughs> what's going on with that? So I really liked that kind of down to earthness and all. Um, but it also, it was a very rich environment with a lot of really thoughtful people um, and were very innovative thinkers. And that was also very attractive to me as well, too. So that's kind of how I got there. Um, and then just kind of built up. I mean, I think one of the things that I also liked about it was that as one person once said, Durham was small enough to have national size problems, but small enough to be able to get people around the table to talk about it, to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's a great description of it. Um, so that was, a, it was a very appealing environment to work in for a while. Oh, that's really neat. I love that. I think that, um, that what you just said there brings it back home with a lot of communities, um, especially communities that we cultivate our, ourselves, whether it's a small business community or um, a group of friends, but we are often trying, especially in today, thinking about some of these global problems and trying to solve them a little bit more at a micro level um, yes. and have that, that change ripple out. So I love that, I love that. So tell us a little bit about what you were doing when you were down in Durham. So like the, the quick context was I was working mostly in education and kind of mental health related nonprofits. Um, so connected to schools, um, everything from initially early in my career being what we, what we were calling kind of like a graduation coach for kids in, that were at risk of dropping out of school. That's, mm -hmm. I guess that's not the term to use anymore, but that's what we were using at the time. Um, and then just kind of moved up over time in like the small nonprofit I was working in um, program management. Um, and then eventually kind of taking on the leadership role in terms of being the executive director. Um, and, my, and actually did that for a couple of nonprofits. One was um, called Communities and Schools at the kind of county level. And another one was Prevent Child Abuse North Carolina at the national level, or I'm sorry, state level. And then actually um, due to, I want to say some frustrations of like the nonprofit world and kind of ecosystem moved into like the social entrepreneurship world. Mm -hmm. um, and that was great because there was a lot of just innovation and different ways of thinking that I really picked up there. So um, kind of got involved in two different ed tech startups or kind of ed tech mental health startups um, in that world or started um, at least one of those. So that's kind of the, the quick context. 
So I've done a little bit of everything, which is kind of also like typical career path as like you, you know things and you kind of pick up things as you go along. And, and in particular, one of the nonprofits, I had to restart from scratch. And when you do that, you have to do mm. everything um, until you can hire a second person. Um, and they, you know, so you're doing everything from at one moment doing an interview on a TV thing to the next moment cleaning the bathroom and everything kind of in between. <laughs> I think startup worlds and nonprofits have a lot of similarities. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. <laughs> I can remember a point when Kathleen and I were first beginning and um, we were renting a space in pretty much a warehouse as a little bit of an office space. And we had some guests coming in and we said, we've got to clean the bathroom. It was this funny little thing. And we looked at each other and said, well, we have one pair of gloves here. You get one and I get one and we will be scrubbing the toilets. And this right here is pretty much the definition of a startup. Yes, you got it. That's exactly true. You have to yes. be willing to do anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah. Lots of, lots of memories there. So throughout your entire career, um, graduation coach, communities in school, um, working in the mental health area, social entrepreneurship, those are very human related jobs that you've had and titles that you have had and that you have done. And of course, since this is the mentor meetup, I want to bring it back to mentorship and talk a little bit about mentorship. Um, and maybe we can start just as an overarching as we sort of define mentorship, what has that been like throughout your professional life? Well, you know, in some ways, I want to say, I don't think that I actually had a lot of mentors. Mm -hmm. um, the, when I've, and I've had this conversation with my wife who actually said the same thing. She's like, I don't remember going through college and really being mentored. And I actually mentioned, I do have a few people that are really kind of overtly were like, no, these were like life-changing people for me. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think we think of mentors a little bit too, too big, like, they are like the life-changing people when actually there's a lot of like small mentoring opportunities that happen as well too. I mean, a concrete one was I had a board chair um, who was working at Duke's um, MBA school um, and he knew a lot more about management and about the financial management of an organization than I did. He was mentoring me a lot on all that stuff. Was he a life-changing influence on me? No. Did he help me like run an effective organization in a completely different way? Yes. Um, so I think that's one of the things that, um, like, I, I think I've, you, my orientation and part towards life in part because of a mindfulness practice that I have is like, everything's my teacher, everyone, everything. Sometimes it's big and like wowing. And sometimes it's smaller and like, oh, I really didn't know how to use zoom or whatever to change my background or whatever it happens to be. Sometimes it really is the minutia stuff, but, and actually I want to connect that to one thing on mentoring is that. I've thought about this a little bit in the last year or two because of some of my more recent work. I think mentoring has been, um, people have this unconscious model of the big brothers, big sisters model that it's a one-on-one -on -one thing. Um, and I was doing a little bit of work with a researcher because a whole bunch of my work has always been kind of like partnering with researchers and kind of trying to bring things into the practical world. And she came up with this, what I thought was pretty simple, aha, or she and a group of people, which was that, it's more like you have multiple mentors and you have multiple mentors over your life. And like the, the more natural model is this kind of like one person, me, the mentee, and I have lots of different mentors in my life. And sometimes for lots of 
different things. Some are work related, some might be spiritual related, some might be emotion related. And I think that's kind of a more natural model that we should be um, thinking about. But I think part of that then has to be like to raise into our awareness that the one-to-one kind of original big brothers, big sisters model that goes back to the eighties and nineties is kind of like our unconscious model that we have right now. And maybe we need to kind of adjust that a little bit. I think that's fascinating. Um, But because I'm just thinking about sometimes (laughs) I know back in, in my experiences, I kind of, there were periods where I'd like just wait, you know, (laughs) like I'm going to wait for somebody to come and enlighten me (laughs) about this thing. And I think that was the, the expectation that I had is that, oh my goodness, there's people out there who know so much more and I'm going to wait for one of these experts to, to come and, Mm -hmm. you know, enlighten me instead of just looking around at the people I had around me and access to and not tapping into, you know, little bits and parts and pieces. And so I heard you, I think that's fascinating that you said that. And then the other thing I, I think I heard you say is there are times when you need specific skills that, Mm -hmm. that a mentor is going to have because they've been in the job or they've done it or whatever. And they're going to give you that guidance that you need to really speed up and accelerate your work you know and then sometimes we think of we can think of a mentor as um just you know little or people who will help you do you know uh make decisions or think differently about something so um do you have a specific um story that you can relate to either one of those types of mentors either you know kind of the big mentor or the the little mentor <laughs> micro micro mentorship i like micro that yeah. yeah you know so like I'll, I'll tell too so i think i think the little one and kathleen i think you're kind of pointing at this or pulling this out of what i was saying is sometimes you know what you don't know right so it's a kind of like i need to learn this right and so i need to find this person who does that and sometimes they're easy to find and sometimes they're not and so i think this like my example of the board chair like he came in and I, you know and it's like, yeah, you know what? I No one's ever trained me on management skills and no one's trained me on the financial stuff. Like just walk me through this and kind of like, and be easy with me. Like, I really don't know what I'm doing here. This is like, you know, we're building this organization and growing it really fast. Um, and so, I mean, that was really helpful to have those kind of very just technical skills with it. Um, I think there's a second one, which I think, I think I was kind of referring to as kind of like the big wow people, which is sometimes you don't know what you don't know or you don't know what you need. And so there's been actually probably a couple of people in my life where I didn't even realize I was looking for something and they kind of said something. I'm like, tell me more about that. And then it would just kind of open up. I'm like, oh, I need this so much. This is incredible. So for me, actually, I'll go back to my meditation practice. Um, I was, I had kind of a history of like an adolescent of being depressed um, and not being particularly happy. And I had grown up the second half of my childhood in kind of the, what the American dream, to kind of put it in quotes, of like this upper middle class suburb. And I was really unhappy and all my friends were really unhappy. And I was like, this is it. Like this, this is the, this is the American dream. Like, and we're all unhappy. Like, okay, there's something wrong with this picture. Um, And so for me, it was a lot about purpose and all. And so I kind of literally one day kind of picked up a book um, and it was combining mindfulness and like enjoyable, slow, hot, mindful baths and chocolate chip 
chip cookie eating meditation and stuff and and also social justice work like changing the world it's like oh this person is putting you like you mean like i can help change the world and like enjoy like a hot warm bath like this all like goes together um and so (laughs) that person very much kind of like i was like that like i didn't even know that i was really looking for this i just knew that i was like needed something um and so for me the the mentioned that the guy's name was Thich Nhat Hanh. And so I just kind of dug into his practice. Um, and I didn't really ever have a personal relationship with him. I did meet him a time or two. Um, but the it, the view of the world and kind of the way of being in the world fit for me so well that it was, it was very profound and life-changing like for me. So that was like one of those big ones. But Kathleen, to your point, I wasn't looking. Like I didn't know what was missing. Um, until it kind of like it popped in front of my face and it was like oh, that I didn't even know that's what I was looking for but I think that might be it let's have this other conversation and actually I'll mention a second one is that as in college kind of grinding through kind of biology major um, dealing with all the pre-meds who were trying to go to medical school that I was not interested in dealing with and um took this course actually on kind of um, ethics and leadership kind of on a whim, partly because people had educated me that when you go to college, look for like the superstar teachers, even if they aren't in your topic area, just like you'll learn from them, like just go do it. So this one guy, and it turned out actually his assistant professor that was working with them mentioned something called community organizing and Mm -hmm. something popped for me. And I just walked down after the, the first class, it was like, what is community organizing? Those are two really interesting words. And I don't even know what, what this is. And he's like, this is not a 30 second conversation. <laughs> Let, let's have like lunch or dinner or a conversation over a beer. And the same kind of thing where I was like, didn't know I was really looking for something. And he was really putting out this idea of community. And it was part of the conversation. It's like, I didn't know that's what I was looking for. But like, you seem to have an answer. Like, like, talk to me, work with me about that. So I'd say kind of on those two levels, I think there's kind of like the technical side where it's like, I know I, I need something. I just need to find that right person. Mm-hmm. And other times it's like, oh, I didn't even know I was looking for it, um, which is a really harder thing around mentoring. It's like, well, how do you create a mentoring program for people if, or any kind of initiative if people don't know that that's what they want or need? Right. Um, <laughs> or or myself of like, I don't know, like how, how, do, how am I supposed to identify what I don't even know that I don't know? is out there. Mm, I love that. I, I can think of so many um, examples in my own life as well, where I've had moments like that. And I think some of it comes from being open uh, to experience something new um, and just the timing. It's all about timing. A lot of t- when you're, when you're in those situations, um, sometimes the universe hands you a book that you need to read or, Put you in a class that you're supposed to be in. Um, but one thing that I think is really interesting is looking and turning this into creating those programs and those experiences and coming back to the nonprofit world. Because in my work with the nonprofit world, the nonprofits that I've worked with um, are usually built around a cause that we're really passionate about. Mm-hmm. It's something that we believe is incredible and that more people should have access to this and opportunity and we should be making a bigger impact in the world. And so in a lot of ways, um, 
a lot of those education-focused nonprofits or mission-driven-focused, really mission-driven-focused um, organizations, I think, are really working hard to put out those mentorship programs to the world. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm curious on your reflection on that, like, how are they doing? Are they are they doing a good job? Are they, as Kathleen and I like to say, a little Montana reference, are they casting flies and seeing what one bites? Or <laughs> is there is there a science um, to this process? Yeah, oh, I mean, I think you're bringing up a really interesting part and it's actually a passionate piece for me. So um, the way I sometimes describe it is I think there's like the head and the heart side of this work, mm-hmm. right? Um, and actually nonprofits are a lot of times really good from the heart side. Mm-hmm. We like people need stuff. We have something like we can really offer or we want to offer and stuff. Um, and at the same time, there's a science and a rigor that has to be brought into it in addition. And it can be hard, I think, to balance both of those. So I'll go to like the science of it. Um, so when I was running communities and schools and I first was starting and I was casting flies to try to like figure out like how to rebuild this thing that had like gone bankrupt. Um, mentoring at the time was the hot thing. Mentoring is not the hot thing now, but it was 15, 20 years ago. And when I actually started to build up our little mentoring program, I had the kind of the belief that most people did. It's like, this is really simple. You find an adult, you find a kid, you stick them together, magic happens. Um, well, I discovered kind of a couple, two, a couple things in, in that realm. One was, um, once I looked into it in our little town of little city of Durham, which is like about 200,000 people or was at that time, um, there were 60 mentoring programs that had popped up that no one really knew about. And I'm like, you know what? I don't think my added value to the community is having program number 61. Um, and two, from a very kind of heady side, I don't think I'm going to win a lot of money being number 61 um, or trying, you know, I need to find a way to differentiate myself from everyone else. So there was that side of it. Um, The second side of it was over time, I was very much a person who was kind of steeped in like an early advocate of the evidence-based programs. And so I was like, okay, if we're going to do things, I want to do things that work. My, my joke would be like, I, I don't want to go to funders and just like, get them to cry. I want them to actually, in addition to the emotions, I want them to kind of feel like they have the confidence that like we're changing lives. And that's where I wanted to be able to look at later in my career to say like, yeah, we actually made a difference. So like, I want to do things that work according to research. Cause I also knew from part of my studies that once you started to evaluate a lot of programs, they don't work or sometimes they actually hurt people. And that's one of the things that's actually not well known. Well, sometimes it is in mentoring is that sometimes programs actually hurt kids if they're not well designed and if they, the relationship isn't there long enough. And we have to be honest about that. We don't like to talk in the kind of education world nonprofits that like, oh, we actually might be harming kids by accident. Um, so I got very much into the rigor. And then there's a field that I discovered after kind of like how do you do these things effectively called implementation science, which mm. is one of those terms that like only I think a researcher could come up with and love that kind of term. <laughs> um, I still use that term and people look at me like implementation science, like what is that, right? And it's really just about how do you effectively implement and scale something so that the next site you do it in, it works just as well as the first site. Um, and from all kinds of worlds to do that. And so I do think that one of the biggest problems for nonprofits, because we're under-resourced 
And we tend to, we, we and our supporters tend to have this kind of scarcity mentality, like we're going to fund you to the bare minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, that what happens is that one of the things that gets cut out is the things that create high quality programs. So particularly the things that like around monitoring and continuous improvement and like follow up, you know, so I told you like my image on mentoring was initially find two people an adult and kids stick them together and magic happens. Well, there's a whole kind of monitoring and coaching process in the middle, which is like to help that mentor, like, how are things going? What are you struggling with? What do you think is going on with the kid? How can I help you? So like, there's a coaching process that takes time, which means money, that usually gets dropped out of programs in terms of the rigor side of it. Um, So I think that rigor side really needs to be amplified up more, but that also then needs to be a conversation in the ecosystem with the funders to say, you need to stop funding us with a minimum amount of money that actually what you need to do is the opposite. You need to give us enough money to run a really high quality program. Otherwise we're just not going to get the results that you're hoping for. Right. So there's, there's the, there's my heady side and you could hear me because, you know, it's getting on my soapbox a little bit on that one. No, I think, I think that's absolutely true because um, as we talk with folks either on this podcast or just in the work that we do, um, you know, it just, that tussle between head and heart is huge. You know, the heart, the passion, everybody says you have to have a passion for what you do, but that isn't enough. Um, you know, there, there's the, the nuts and bolts of it and the effectiveness of it that really is where um, it's difficult. So we have, and I think you addressed this a little bit, a feature in this podcast known as snakes in the axle. And so... <laughs> This comes, uh, this is an idiom that we came up with in Inspired Classroom um, as we were coming across the wheat fields of Montana after doing a program and we were super tired. And Allie, I was driving, Allie was looking out the window and there was big combines going. And she said, I wonder if they ever have snakes in their axles and have problems. And of course, then. We broke into hysterical laughter and because we were punchy and tired. And then when we pulled up to the hotel, uh, we happened to be pulling a trailer that had a power cord on it. And I turned around and looked and sure enough, there was the snake in the axle. (laughs) The power cord had been dragging clear across Montana. So (laughs) then, of course, we went hilarious after that, too. So um, so from ever on, we call our issues that get gum up the works and kind mm-hmm. of stop forward progress and uh, maybe come out of, of a hole somewhere that we didn't anticipate um, as our snake in the axle. So um, in your view and in the work you've done or in your experience, what, what are some of those snakes in the axle that you've seen that impede um, good mentorship? I think you've talked about some of that or um, that have impeded your progress in your professional career and what advice would you have? Um, so I had a couple and I mean, tell me if you wanna dig in on anyone in particular, I would say um, we need to start being, we need to create safe spaces where we can be vulnerable and admit mistakes and failure um, because we learn from those. We've been all taught too well about how to pitch ourselves um, in the positive frame when at night in, in private, we're like very, we feel like I think we all collectively have imposter syndrome. Um, The second thing I think is actually this kind of idea around rigor that we just talked about, like how do we do something and just do it really, really well um, and feel really confident that we're getting like amazing results out of it. 
Um, there's a third one that um, if we want to do systems change, there's a process of trying to name so, um, to name why things work the way they do. So there's the reason like school systems work the way they do is that there's kind of an invisible like, like group of assumptions that have happened over time. So part of it, you have to name those so that you can try to change them, but you have to have all the right stakeholders to do it because no one has, it's like the elephant, like no one, someone knows the tail, someone knows the head kind of thing. Mm. Um, so I, the system the system works the way it does because it's designed to work the way it does. And if you're going to make systems change, you have to kind of like unravel it to kind of redo it a little bit as well too. Um, there is a fourth one, which was probably the most important and insightful thing that I could have said that I can't remember at the moment, but like I'll, I'll leave it for those three at the moment. I'll say that, that'll be my teaser for like the next conversation. I'm like, Bud, what was number four? What was, was your four? fourth snake? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Bud has, I mean, Bud has at least four snakes going on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, oh, actually, I do know what I think the other one that is, is that, um, we need to have better conversations with the funders. The funders at the end of the day are the ones that are going to really be able to change things. And basically we need to have the funders that actually they're a big part of the problem. Um, and I'll give you, a, I'll, I'll dig into that one as a, an example of a positive version of this. So when I was trying to promote an evidence-based parenting program and fund it, and everyone would say, yes, we want to fund that. And I'm like, it'll cost $15,000 per group. And they'll be like, great, we'll give you five. I just told you the research says to do this really well, I need $15,000. So like, we'll give you five. I'm like, okay, I'll do it, but it's not going to work. Um, so, which is the typical kind of process, you know, mm -hmm. you always ask for more because you know you're not going to get the full amount. On the other side, I had a foundation. It was actually, I'll say who it was because they were fantastic. It was the Duke Endowment. Um, they actually came out with a proposal for evidence-based parenting programs. And they overtly said, if you put in a proposal and you're not fully funding this at $25,000 a group, we won't even look at your application. And I was like, hmm. you've got to be kidding me. Like they understand like to implement this thing really well. And it turned out they were looking at the same research I was about like implementation science and rigor and all this other kind of stuff. But they were the first foundation that I felt like I could have a conversation with where they were thought partners and I could talk to them about like, we're struggling with this part, but they also knew that they needed to fund us well to do the program well, to get the results that they also wanted to get. Um, I think they were a great model in that kind of way. And I'd love to have that. I think there needs to be more conversations like with funders um, to really kind of say like, you're part of the system that's created the scarcity like world in the nonprofit sector and we need to change this because otherwise we're really just not going to be able to make the change well we all want to do there's a lot of money wasted yeah yeah yes. well there's a lot of money wasted i think one of the things that we've talked about for a really long time um in business and in education and also working with nonprofits is the model of the breadth versus the depth and so frequently people are very focused on the breadth, how many, how many bottoms and seats can you, can you get? How, how many numbers can I give to the granting organization to show that my program is having a really big impact? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's really interesting because we have a lot of conversations about 
you know, you can, you can go wide or you can go deep, but it's really hard to go wide and deep, especially if you have limited funds and if you don't have a program that you have tested and tried and that is working before you try to take it out to a really large group of people. Um, and that's, yeah, I've seen that time and time again. And I think sometimes um, those nonprofits and organizations almost feel hostage to the fact that they have to get this number amount of, or this this many people in order for it to say that we have done good. <laughs> we yes, have made yes. an impact. <laughs> so really yeah. Um, I want to move on to the discovery uh, part of this around mentorship. And one of the things that you said was your first snake, I think, was the fact that you need to create spaces to, for people to feel vulnerable and to fail because that's where learning happens. Um, so in thinking about your work um, in, in the nonprofits and in mentorship, how do you create what are some tips to create that space? Um, I know we've had other folks on this podcast who have talked about culture and, you know, the business culture and that kind of thing. How do you create a space in a mentor program or a, a education system to, to be vulnerable and to go ahead and make mistakes? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. And I'm going to say that's, that's part of my not knowing necessarily. I mean, I'll throw out some ideas, but... Um, but I, I, I want to, as part of that, I think, first of all, we have to acknowledge that it's an issue, right? Um, really quick, short story. Um, when I was doing the social entrepreneurship, I was doing, I was interviewing a young Latina woman at University of North Carolina, um, and she was a senior and she had been mentoring a couple of other um, Latina um, first year students. And I was asking her about like, what was working, what wasn't, what did they need? And she came and she said something really interesting related to this. She's like, but so of the two, one of them was really struggling and we worked during the year and we kind of worked through all kinds of stuff with her. And I thought everything that had got, was going really well. And when we got to the very end of the second semester, she basically said, I'm failing. And this young woman who was the mentor was like, wait a second, I thought we'd been working on this stuff. And the young woman who was interviewing was saying, look at, like in the traditional sense, like they came to me because I am them. I'm an older version, I'm a, I'm a woman, I'm going through the same college, I'm Latina in a predominantly white university, and they were afraid to be vulnerable with me. So how do we get that out into the open? So I think on the one hand, it's great, right? There's some conversations going on in the culture right now that says like, like let's talk about fail failure. Mm -hmm. um, entrepreneurship is really good about saying that. I think sometimes it gets really sanitized that because it it sucks to fail, like it hurts, <laughs> like it's embarrassing, um, and it's not somewhere where we want to go kind of emotionally. So I do think we have to have like the groups, and I do think there's a lot of people who really want to find those safe groups. In fact, actually in Campus Candor, that was one of the biggest things I found when I was interviewing young people, like reading in between the lines, is that they wanted an anonymous way to ask for help in kind of like their deepest, darkest secrets. Um, and I still think there's an opportunity to kind of try to create a forum to do that. I was thinking of it for young people. I think for us, it's kind of the thing where you have to do it, where you have to have a kind of closed door conversation where you, you create a safe space and like nothing goes outside of the room and we get to kind of talk about the stuff that really haunts us at night. Um, 
And there's got to be the confidentiality so that you really feel like this isn't going to kind of go public in some kind of way. Um, and maybe, I mean, I think ideally it happens when you can kind of have a face to face, whether it's a Zoom conversation or whether it's in a room. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe sometimes it's kind of like some kind of prompt where you can kind of like my one of the ideas that we played with that we couldn't fully get out, out like make practical yet was like prompt people to kind of like what is your what is that what is your deepest fear what is that snake like that's mm-hmm. in there that you don't want you don't even want to know it's like I'm going to ignore that that's there as best as I can let alone tell someone else that that snake is there um yeah. but surface that and maybe in some kind of anonymous way kind of like throw it out to you know your peers or your group of like so this is this is what scares the dick dickens out of me in terms of the work that I'm doing um so I, I don't know. I think that's kind of like the, an open question. Um, and I think the other part of it that gets in the way, Kathleen, about this whole stuff is that um, that we haven't talked about is that because of the lack of funding and at least to your point, the breadth, is that we spread ourselves really, really thin. And so to slow down, to feel like I have the time to sit down and talk with a person or a group of people and talk about those fears, that sounds so wishy-washy when it's like, like I got to write the next grant. Um, like the money's got to come in the door and you want me to talk about like my feelings. Um, yeah. Like I'll do that some other time. Yeah. I, I don't think we, we've not been taught to value that, that. And so what we don't value, we don't give time to. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I, I'm just envisioning now any mentorship program alley that we develop now has a snakes in the axle component. <laughs> that's, that's what we're, we're going to call them. Your no, I, I, time. I think that's wonderful, right? Because if, yeah. I mean, if that could be kind of part of the training and the coaching process for mentors, which is try to open up the conversation or to create the space with your mentee to like ask like, yeah, what is what, what are the snakes that are going on for you? You know, at least you've created the space that they can choose to step into if they want to or not. Um, I, I think that's a great way to actually build that into the program. I love that. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's I love that too. And it, it reminds me a little bit of what Dave Danford said in um, our last episode of the Mentor Meetup. Um, one of his big revolution, the revolutionary pieces was listening and that we need to do some more listening as mentors um, and really drive that. And this comes from yet another mentor that we've had on the student or the learner voice, because if we approach everything with, we have a plan to fix it and this is how it's going to work, then we're not going to get at the heart of what's really going on. um, Whether that's in startup world, if you're working with a business that's trying to figure out how to go to the next level, um, whether it's working with a student who's frustrated or depressed or trying to figure out how they fit into the world or anything in between. So I really love, I really love that, bud. Thank you. I think you're right. I think that's actually one of the things that I learned a lot from the startup world and entrepreneurship um, they have a different methodology than, so in the nonprofit world, part of it is I thought I and we had like the answers for young people a lot of times and researchers in particular are notoriously bad for that. Even though I love working with researchers, they're like, no, we have like the answer. Like we do it from this like theory and research base. Um, they're not very good 
And I think we need to learn more from the entrepreneurship world of like human design thinking and the interviewing of stakeholders and really trying to listen both to what's said, but also they're looking for the insights of what's not being said that people really need to. Um, and so I think you're right. I think there's a complementary way of um, working with people, whether it's individually or whether it's in program design, where it's very centered on like the whoever the recipient of the service is. Um, although I think it's also in like the whole ecosystem too, because I think part of it is, is the talk to like on the funder side of it or whoever it happens to be, because you got to figure out like, this is what they want, but how are we going to like fund this thing in a sustainable way moving forward? Um, like just a quick story on that one. I was listening, as at a mentoring conference and it was on research, someone got up there who was the grand poobah chair, endowed chair of whatever university, and they created a mindfulness program I got really nice results on it. I had created mindfulness programs with researchers. So I was like, yeah, I know this stuff. Um, but I was listening because I, I knew it's like, yeah, you're going to get good results. And the mistake, they made a couple of mistakes actually with it. And she said, once the funding ran out and we pulled out of the schools where we were doing it, the program disappeared within six months, even though the teachers adored the program. And I was like, duh, yes. Like I could have told you that 20 years ago. Um, and the reason is, is that they created the program with just the isolation around like, can we create this mindfulness program for kids that works? It's like, yes. All right. But you didn't talk to the school system. Like, where does their money come from? Who's going to run this program afterwards? Like, what's going to, and so on the one hand, we do have to talk to like the kids about like, what do they want? What, what's liking? What's working for them? Uh -huh. What's not working for them? But at the same time, we got to talk to like the people that are doing it, whether it's the school counselor, or the principal, or the teachers. And then like, well, where does your money come from? And like, so we have to now. I mean, it becomes if you're really going to get a program that sustains itself, you have to have this like not knowing mindset that you got to like work into the ecosystem of it to get it to like this is how we're actually going to get this program to sustain itself rather than living from grant to grant. Um, so I'm extending a little bit about what you're saying, but it's the listening and having those vulnerable conversations too with uh -huh. like the decision makers of like, you know, where, what, the old question used to be like, you know, what keeps you up at night? Um, I mean, I think if you had those conversations with their funding systems and folks that they'd be like, yeah, you know what? This is what keeps me up at night. Like, yeah, we're putting out all this money on a drug prevention program. Does it work? And, you know, if it, the money, you know, ran out, like, would it go away tomorrow? Like, yeah. Um, so, hmm. I really like what you're saying about uh, about that, and I think it's a cautionary tale for all of us in this business to um, think longer term than just the one thing. Um, I spent a lot of my career in gifted education, and the the joke was always, we used to have a gifted education program, but she left. And <laughs> because it was never systematized and it was never supported in the system, and it was completely dependent upon one person who had you know specialized training. and And so looking beyond just that one thing that we want to do, just that one impact that we want to make, and really working within systems and listening and bringing multiple stakeholders on board so there's a commitment to sustainability i think is and it's and it's darn hard you know it's very very difficult um it is. and time consuming and financially consuming so other than that 
What else would you do to revolutionize the, the learning environment right now today? What, what one thing would you change if you could? One thing that I would change. Um, you know what? I think it pulls together a couple of the things we've been talking about, which is um, trying to pull together a space for the folks who are like the innovators. Because I think we, you, need, you, you can feel very alone, like I'm doing my own little thing and there's no one in my organization or my community that doesn't like me, even though there might be 20 or a thousand across the country. Um, and I'll, in, I don't always do this really well. Sometimes I'm a little bit of a bull in a china shop. Um, I was actually talking to someone in the Gates Foundation about some of this work around, they were, I was interested around post-secondary education because I was very frustrated that um, both with my own kids going through it and seeing what was happening with young people is that they're not preparing people for the real world. Like they hit their final year, they got to the real world and they're like, oh, college taught me nothing about how to like live on my own. Um, and like, you know, they call it adulting. Um, hmm. And off the record, someone from foundation said, we're really frustrated. We can't like to move these systems. Like it's incredible, like the resistance. And they, they somehow they got really smart. What they did is they said, you know what? We're going to name a few. And obviously because they have money, right? They could like, like fund a few innovators um, and got them around the table to kind of let them kind of self-define kind of moving forward. And a little bit of this conversation around like, like what's keeping you up at night? Like, what, how do we do these things? Cause they were frustrated with it too. And then by doing that, what happened is that people heard other innovators heard about it and they're like, we want in too. Yeah. Like, yeah. We didn't, we weren't named in the grant stuff, but we want to show up at the conference because you're doing what I've been wanting to do. And there's mm -hmm. only one of me in my university. And so um, actually now they're beating people away from the doors. Like, like, no, like we can't make a, a conference big enough for like this many people that are this I mean they've created the momentum around it but they had to do it with patience and they but they created the initial space um and safety and obviously money helps is on attraction on a couple pieces of that but what they did is they were creating the space where they could be like I need some of my other like-minded souls mm -hmm. um, to be with and kind of knock ideas around and to learn from other people it's like oh I didn't think about that at your university you're doing that oh I could do that like you know, so I think that's the, I think pulling people together, I think that's a theme that's beginning to, um, that's come through this conversation in a couple of different places. Yeah. Mm, thank you so much, bud. This has been a wonderful conversation. I have a lot, I have a lot to chew on and to think about after this one. Uh, it's been wonderful. I really appreciate it. Like, I mean, I think this is a little ver uh, a version of it. You guys are doing kind of what we're talking about is you're trying to pull the, like the similar like-minded souls together and like let's have conversations let's uh -huh. connect um you know let's learn from each other and, and kind of apply things into our own world of you know work that we're doing so i've really enjoyed the conversation i'm i'm, I'm happy that by some kind of strange circumstances that we got connected which it seems to be the way the world works a lot at times like you mentioned something and it's like oh, i need to introduce you to this other uh -huh. person <laughs> You guys need to meet. I don't know what will happen, but magic will happen. That's, I think that's been one of the upsides of the last two years is like people are a little less hesitant to get 
people together just because we're using so much technology to do that anyway. So, um, yeah, I mean, you can be in it where you are, we're in Missoula and, and we can still have these great meaty conversations. However, we would love to get together with you for real sometime and a frosty beverage and, <laughs> and continue this conversation. Um, so I just like to th say thank you so much, Bud, for joining Allie and me for the Mentor Meetup. Uh, and to our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, please tell your friends, subscribe, and leave a rating or review. Find out more about what Inspired Classroom is up to by visiting inspiredclassroom.com and following us on all the regular social media platforms. There's also a link to our Mentor Meetup page on our website. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, bud. Thank you.